Summer classes are up right now at storiesrpg.com. So if you would like to join me and tell some stories of your own, create characters and worlds of your own design, take a look and see if there's one that you can join me for. And I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome back to Stories RPG, the podcast where we tell stories better together. And today, since we've ended our arc of Giga City, is a Right Light episode. And I have with me Dan Hines, a.k.a. Ape Canaveral, the writer from Stories Podcast. Say hello to the lovely people, Dan. Hello to the lovely people, Dan. How are you doing, Michael? Good man, I'm actually kind of excited because you you brought something near and dear to my heart for us to talk about today. Um, you you brought in some stuff by Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut, amazing writer. Not so much for kids, but you know for teenagers. And um, either way, he's got some kind of great rules for writing. Uh, he was always a little sarcastic, a little kind of tongue in cheek, and his rules are sort of the same way. But he's got eight of these bad Larrys, and I think uh, we should go through them. Yeah, you know, I'll say about Kurt Vonnegut just before we get started. One of the things I love about Kurt Vonnegut is I feel like for a long time, fantasy, science fiction, sort of creative, what people sometimes used to call speculative fiction, what ifs, right? What if this were true? Well, then what would the world be like? He was one of the first writers to really kind of jump from this small field of fantasy into the mainstream. And he pointed out that oftentimes speculative fiction, and I'm thinking of like Octavia Butler, you know, there, there are so many powerful folks out there, uh, Margaret Atwood, who really wrote brilliant, deep, thoughtful, challenging work. And oftentimes it was discounted as being just fantasy or just science fiction, kind of in the way that comic books used to be discounted as just a kid thing. Where in fact, you can do really deep, brilliant, lovely storytelling um, using a fantasy or science fiction setting to explore ideas that can be difficult to work with in, you know, in the, the practical, solid, real of the world. And so I love that Ver Kurt Vonnegut was one of those first authors who both made the jump and also critiqued people who discounted sci science fiction and fantasy as being somehow different than or less than and really brought it back into the mainstream as as a a really wonderful deep valuable source of of great writing. Yeah, he's a great writer and he had a lot to mine from. He is a war veteran who saw some uh, terrible things there and that was kind of his first couple books and sort of anti-war throughout all of his bibliography and then just a great lover of like the classic sci-fi and a lot of stuff that we have today is like kind of cribbed from Kurt Vonnegut, whether or not it's uh, obvious. He he was one of the sort of, maybe not in the same breath as like a Asimov or a Heinlein, but certainly the second generation behind those guys. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I might put him in there because he he reinvented the genres. Um, I will say, like, as a teenager reading his stuff for the first time, and I'm thinking about Cat's Cradle, which I loved, and Galapagos. And, uh, and Slaughterhouse-Five, of course, which a lot of kids read in, in school, it felt familiar in a way. Um, I was reading this sort of uh, really fresh 
almost sort of punk rock take on what was wrong with the world, um, poking holes in a lot of the things that people take for granted and pointing out some of the hypocrisies that the world runs on and really asking if we couldn't be better. And I've, I've read some really great stuff about how he changed political discourse in the world as well, um, being pro-peace, anti-war, uh, pro-sustainability. He really um, pushed, I think, popular thinking by using speculative fiction to explore possible futures that would result from what we are doing and, and how we behave. All right. Let's get into his rules on writing. All right. We got eight of these. I'm going to start with the first one, which I think should basically be the first thing every writer should think about when they sit down to write. And that is rule one, use the time of a stranger in such a way that they will not feel the time was wasted. Basically, don't waste anyone's time. What, what do you think about that? I, uh, I think this is actually the first big hurdle for most beginning writers. A lot of us, when we want to write, we have these wonderful worlds in our heads. But if you've ever talked to like a kid about a world that they've created, and let me say, students of mine, I, I, I think kids have brilliant ideas. There's nothing different from a kid's uh, created world and an adult's created world, except how they talk about that world. So kids can have these brilliant worlds that they've really you know, created and explored and, and have all these ideas for. But very often when they talk or think about them, when they start to try to write them down, they forget that they're writing for other people because that world is something they've created for themselves. A world that you've created for yourself can be wonderful and immersive and fun for you. But if you want to share it with somebody, you have to figure out how to communicate it in a way that's going to be involving, that's going to make other people care about that world and the people in it in the same way that you do. So understanding that when you write, you're writing to communicate and thinking about what is going to really hook somebody. What's going to make them interested? How can I lead them on and get them engaged, make them care about my characters? That's absolutely central to the act of writing. Uh, as a storyteller in the games, I have to think about this all the time. How do I engage my players? How can I hint at certain mysteries? How can I describe things in ways that make my players interested in the environment and in the people in it and want to run around and ask questions and poke things? Yeah, it sort of ties into another, there's sort of an old writing adage that like goes, uh, kill your darlings, which basically means be willing to get rid of stuff that like you really love if it's not working. And I think that's that's a lot of the big uh, new writer time wasting is like you fall in love with like a description of a character or a, a place or a game or something. It'd be like, imagine if you were reading, you know, any of these old fiction books and they take a three chapter diversion to tell you about the history of the sword or, you know what I mean? Like the lineage of kings going back 200 years. Like maybe it's stuff you've built out and you really like, but it's going to feel like a waste of time in the context of the story. Remember, like Michael was saying, not everybody has all the context for your great idea. You got to keep things moving at a clip. You don't want anybody to feel, um, you just don't want to, you just don't want to bore anybody really. Right. That's what it comes down to. Even if you're not revealing some like great truth, or even if there's not a super deep moral to whatever you're working on, sometimes that's fine. Sometimes stuff can just be fun. But if it's just fun, make sure it's fun. You know, like make sure people are going to get something out of it, even if that something is just distracting them from their real life troubles for half an hour, you know? You know, you know what? Actually, you've made me want to jump to the fourth one on this list, if I can go out of order, uh, because I think it speaks to what you're talking about. Um, 
Sure, we can skip to four. Okay, so four is every sentence must do one of two things. Reveal character or advance the action. I often say it either has to help explain who a character is, and that's reveal character, right? I'm just saying it a different way. And for advance the action, I often like to say uh, push the plot forward. So the story that you're trying to tell, right? The what, the what's going to happen. So it's either got to say, it's either got to go deeper into who or, uh, or help push forward what happens next, right? And I, I think this is great, but I wanted to say like, I think this is a, a, a matter for, for, for drafts. So when you said earlier, like, yeah, you know, you might be into the sword, but don't, don't write the history of the sword for three chapters because you might bore your audience. I, I, would, uh, I would say, do write the story about the sword, but that's that trash file suggestion I made in an earlier write light. Write everything you're fascinated in, but then understand that when you're putting it together to hand to someone else, you might need to take those chapters out if they don't fit the flow of the story that will be compelling for your reader. And, and that's, that's part of this, you know, every sentence has to do two things, right? It either has to let you fall more in love with a character or be more interested in a character, tell us who they are, or it has to push the story forward. Um, I think it's brutal to say every sentence, but I don't think it's wrong necessarily in your final draft. In your first draft, of course, your sentences can just be because you wanted to write them down. Go for it. Yeah, I would add a third thing, right? So you want to you want to reveal character, you want to advance the action, but then I think there's some the third thing is um advancing like the tone, right? Cuz sometimes if you're reading a scary book, sometimes there's window dressing that's to set the horror tone. If you're reading sci-fi, oh, there's stuff that's not necessarily plot, but it is world building to like kind of sink these people in. If you're writing romance, there's definitely plenty of stuff that's not characters or plot but is just the interplay it's just relationship building it's setting the feel of a cozy town you know these cozy mysteries is another thing where it's just kind of building this broad world or i see it a lot in like you know stuff that's funny like um douglas adams or uh terry pratchett um i'd recommend hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy read read pretty young i think and um some of that like there's lines that definitely don't advance the plot and they aren't there for character but but they're funny. And that's oh, yeah. an example of tone is he has asides that are just funny. You know what I mean? And I think so stuff that stuff that advances the tone sort of fits in between those two. I think I really like that you pointed this out. Cause I think for me, my brain sort of says, well, tone is a part of both character and plot. Like a plot can't exist without a tone, right? Right. It's somewhere between the two. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like uh, your setting is a character. I think that's how I would frame it. You know, the place and the the feeling of the story, it's kind of its own person. It's the it's the framework for all the rest that's happening. So, you know, I could describe a marketplace in a fantasy city as like a bustling, exciting place full of commerce where, you know, there's millions of different interesting things going on and drop all sorts of details that might get you interested or I could tell that story where everyone is sort of eyeing each other suspiciously and there's a, an air of mistrust and people are, you know, clearly on the lookout for, for burglary. And, and there's a lot of, uh, there's clearly some, something wrong in this town with the trust that everyone feels in one another or right. So that's, 
to me, that's sort of an element of plot, but you're right. It's a third thing. Tone matters. It It's the the, the overall mood that you set in your story. And that's definitely worth plenty of sentences. Sure. And the other thing I think, like going to what you said of it being like setting, being a character, I think the narrator can almost be a character. Like that's like the big thing in Douglas Adams and a lot of, a lot of books that try to be funnier is the narrator has their own voice and they're cracking jokes and it's kind of advancing you know, the, the author's own voice, whether it's a first person narration and it's a character or it's the author themselves, there, there's a character to narration, I think. Actually, this is one of the things I end up teaching in my writing classes. I spend a lot of time on point of view and narrator's voice because a lot of students who begin writing fiction do so from a first person perspective, but they don't consider who their first person narrator is speaking with. So they often do what's called breaking the fourth wall. So they'll they'll do something like, hi, I'm so-and-so. And you're like, wait a minute, who are they talking to? And if the answer is the reader, then you've just admitted it's a story, which means they're a fake constructed character, which kind of disrupts your ability to fall into the story. But even a third person uh, narration where everything is described as though it's being watched by someone who isn't there, Right where they're saying, you know, so-and-so walked into the room. They checked their watch and and worried for a moment. Where was so-and-so? That's that's acting as though the person telling the story is able to dip into people's heads, right? And is describing what happens as though you're sort of watching a movie, right? As though there is no uh, actual person telling the story. But even those third-person narrators have a mood and can set a tone with the way in which they describe things. So being aware of your narrator voice, that's sort of your your authorial choice. And you can change your narrator voice once you get comfortable with it. And it, it creates a lot of great variance in stories and a lot of depth. 100%. We're veering off the rules, but I, I love that. And I just want to add, speaking of doing three chapters on just a sword, it makes me think of uh, one of my favorite books. I think you guys, uh, you know, definitely safe for kids. And uh, great for adults, too, is called The Rifle by Gary Paulson. Mm. It follows the life of a revolutionary, I believe, war rifle from the first from the guy who makes it all the way to modern day times where it's like hung as a wall piece. And it's just the story of this one rifle. And um, yeah, it's just beautifully written and it's short. You could probably it's a little novella. And uh, yeah, I think people would like it. And again. That one, the only main character is the rifle, and it goes through decades and generations, and uh, it's uh, just an example of a really well-done version of that kind of thing. All right. As long as we're dropping uh, book recs, I promise this is short. You you mentioned Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett, but then you didn't give a specific Terry Pratchett recommendation. If y'all are out there, Terry Pratchett is on my top five uh, of all-time favorite authors, uh, up there with Walter Moyers, who not enough people know about. Um, but go check out the Tiffany Aching series. Um, it's great. It's definitely readable for all ages. And Terry Pratchett's, you know, older stuff, he's awfully clever to the point where his narrator can be so clever that you'll miss the joke if you're not paying close attention. And then once you get used to it, you'll find yourself laughing out loud quite often. But the Tiffany Aching series, he writes in a slightly different narrator voice and the humor is more accessible and you can kind of follow what's going on a little bit more easily. Um, and he's got so many weird and wonderful characters. I love his stuff. All right, let's go to, to rule number two. Give the reader at least one character they can root for. 
Yeah, and we've talked about rules like this before, but uh, I think in general, this is pretty true, right? You don't want to read about somebody you don't like and their adventures, you know? You want to have at least, you know, it's okay to have some characters who aren't as likable, who you want to see get their comeuppance, but in general, you want to have at least one person the audience can, uh, yeah, that they can root for, that they can want to follow, you know? want some At least one person's story they want to know. I don't know. I don't think necessarily it has to be you want to root for them. I, I would say... Uh, a character they root can root against is probably also okay. I think the problem is if you have no character you can root for, only a character you root against, you don't feel as compelled to find out what happens. It can be easier to kind of give up along the way because you're like, yeah, well, I hate this person. How much more How much more of, of them behaving awfully do I have to survive before they get they get what's coming to them? I, I I think this is a good rule for just a basic, uh, you know, basic storytelling. There's always got to be at least one sympathetic person who, as a reader, you kind of connect with, and you think, yeah, I like this person, and I want to find out what happens to them, and hopefully see them get what they're looking for. Um, I don't think there's much more to say about that one. It's it's pretty straightforward for me. Have a variety of characters, and just make sure there's at least uh, one person, even if they're not the best person, somebody who is getting better or has a chance to redeem themselves or who is maybe they're going to fall off along the way but that's okay too but just at least somebody the audience can kind of latch on to oh actually hold on you made me think of something and i've mentioned this before but i'll mention it quickly rooting for a character means that they have to have something they need or that they want and this is rule three every character should want something even if it is only a glass of water which I agree with, but I wanted to, to add something because this kind of connects two and three for me. If you make a character who's too powerful or too cool and too sort of perfect, then it's harder to root for them. You might like them or look up to them, but because they're so perfect, they become a little uninteresting. You're not really worried for them. You're not really rooting for them. So you have to give them something they want, something that that they're trying to achieve, something that makes them compelled to move forward and makes you as a reader care about what's going to happen. So I think this sort of connects rule two and rule three for me. The character you can root for has to be somebody who wants something. And yeah, every character should want something. It doesn't have to be explicitly stated, but Every character should have something that motivates them. That's why drive is so important in Stories RPG. Really, every character comes down to their drive. What is it that really drives them, right? What do they want? And it doesn't have to be something that can be achieved. A glass of water is, you know, pretty easily achieved in most settings. Granted, you could write a story where achieving a glass of water is tough. If you're in the desert, it's a whole different thing. But I think the key is give them something that motivates them that is internal, not just external. External goals are great. Internal goals, I think, are really what animate a character and bring them to life. They got to want stuff. They got to be motivated. Even your side characters should want stuff, and that should inform how they're acting in the story. Just give them little things to want, and if you can, just give them little arcs. You know, the main character will have their big arc, and you know, the side characters should have their own little arcs too. And if you're doing a real good job, they should all intertwine together and the solution for one should cascade into the solution for the next. And, you know, it can be maybe, you know, one character is trying to save the world and a side character is just trying to get his cat back. And those two things should happen because of each other, however small they may be. I think that's 
I think my favorite stories have that element of, I always think of them as like a roundness. It has like a full circle feeling to all the elements. And I think that's like, especially when you're writing fantasy or, um, you know, stuff for kids or stuff for younger audiences, just having that nice round feeling to stories is um, just really satisfying. And it's a great way to do it is to give everybody something little they want. Yeah. I, I, I think of drive a lot because uh, that helps me as a storyteller know what a character is going to do or say. So in terms of those little arcs uh, in stories, RPG, I really enjoyed uh, the sort of mini arc of Werebear Sam uh, creating him as sort of this vulnerable character who really just wanted to belong and kind of find a, a home and a family that he felt like he could rely on. Um, I liked Skitter being, you know, just he wanted to run around and be cool and and be a superhero with y'all um, and, and you know, kind of thrill seeking. Right. And then you had Echo Locat, whose real concern was keeping her people safe and being really nervous and suspicious of outsiders. Um, so like just having all of those, even Jorge had his own, you know, his own, uh, his own drive, which was really about controlling all of these things that were out of his control for most of his life. So even though he was a villain, he had something he wanted and that's, you know, a misinterpretation of how to achieve it is what led to uh, a lot of the drama. All right. Next up, number five, sort of, uh, up in the air as to what exactly it means, but number five is start as close to the end as possible. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one because I think it could be interpreted to mean know where your story is going and how it's going to close before you start writing, which when I teach essay writing to students, I will always say, write your introduction last. And, you know, a lot of people will look at me kind of funny when I say that. And my my explanation is always you can't introduce something if you don't know what you're introducing. Right. So I think stories can sometimes operate the same way. If you know where things are going, then you know how to get there more accurately. If you know where you're traveling to, you're not going to be as confused trying to navigate getting there. But as a storyteller, actually, I kind of like writing and playing in Stories RPG to find out. I like exploring. Sometimes I like setting up all the characters and setting up the drama and not knowing for certain how it will resolve. So in Stories RPG's Giga City Guardians arc, I really didn't know how y'all were going to decide to do things. And I got surprised multiple times and that made it more fun for me as a storyteller. So while I understand the idea, I'm not sure I agree fully. I think the way I interpret it, the way I think of it is... When it says start as close to the end as possible, I think it means start when the story gets good, right? Like if there's a big inciting event or if there's, you know, you want to write the story because something interesting's happening, start with the interesting bit. I think a lot of writers, and again, all these rules are made to be broken and plenty of people have broken this one specifically to great effect. But Amen. I just think you don't always need to give three chapters kind of day in the life of the characters before the exciting thing happens, you know? Start as close to the exciting thing as possible, right? And that's a good way to keep your audience. It's a good way to rope people in. It's a good way to not waste time. And honestly, a, lo- a lot of the times, the stuff that feels important about character building can be done just as effectively in a shorter space. You know, like people always use the example of Star Wars, which introduces, you know, a half dozen characters, a galactic conflict, 
a rebellion, you know, an empire, a, a secret order of wizard knights, and all these things, like a smuggler network. And it does all these things and tells a complete, beautiful story in two hours. You know, introduces them, gives them full arcs, tells the story of the world, a rich, it just gives you all kinds of stuff, and it does it in two hours. And like that kind of writing, you know, you don't see as much anymore, I think. I think it's great. Uh, Star Wars, as an example, is a great, great one because they also do, they start with an action, you know, exciting piece, but it's definitely not the end. It's uh, it's sort of the inciting action. They start with the you know, the very first scene is that giant starship overhead and uh, Darth Vader going after Princess Leia, who is, uh, who's got the plans for the Death Star and she puts them in R2-D2 and fires off the little capsule. And that's how the story kind of gets started. And I love that that's an example. I actually think, I often think that Star Wars made the mistake of having that, you know, that scrolling uh, background um, narrative that starts it off. I feel like if they had dropped that and they just started with the attack, you'd figure it out as you went, which I love. And in fact, this this makes me want to jump to eight because eight is another one I disagree with. And it's very relevant to a Star Wars discussion of story if you're down. Can we go to eight? Yeah, we can go to eight. Let's let's bounce around. I don't think he wrote them in any particular order. Right on. Okay, so this is this is this is the one that I disagree with the most. It says give your readers as much information as possible as soon as possible. To heck with suspense. Readers should have such complete understanding of what is going on, where and why, that they could finish the story themselves should cockroaches eat the last few pages. Um, I think that Star Wars is a perfect example of that not being true. Uh, there's so many different interesting pieces of that world that get revealed as you go. And I think for me, especially in any kind of world that is not our world, right? Right. Any world where there are things that are out of the ordinary, strange, that don't follow our rules of physics or our rules of, uh, of existence, different peoples, different cultures. One of the key elements for me is those pieces should be revealed to the reader as part of the, the journey of reading. You don't know right off the bat at the beginning of a great novel uh, at Star Wars, you don't, you don't know about Jedi. You don't really understand what they are. And in fact, you find out about Jedi as Luke does. He runs into this weird old dude, right? And the weird old dude says some mysterious stuff. And then eventually you've got him training to be a Jedi on the ship. And you've got, you know, Han Solo being salty about, yeah, all that old mystic mumbo jumbo. What are you getting? You're getting the information that not only is there this strange stuff called the Force, but that it's considered to be kind of an ancient weird storytale myth and not considered to be real anymore and the jedi have kind of disappeared and you're also seeing him do some pretty cool things with it and you're getting slowly getting this idea that it's this bigger destiny and the fact that those things are revealed slowly makes them way more interesting and powerful because they seem like a natural part of the world rather than this weird let me tell you all about this world before we get started which jerks you out of the story of who the characters are and what they care about. Those, those pieces, you know, rule number two and rule number three, right? Those two, having that character you can root for and every character wanting something, characters drive a story. So as you're following the story, dropping those tidbits of exploring the world is really important. 
I think what he's trying to get at with this, so give your readers as much information as possible. Um, they should be able to finish the ending themselves. I think it's more, I think he's just against the um, the late game twist, right? Which certainly has a place in like genre work and mysteries and horror. I think I think it has a place. I get where Vonnegut's coming from, but I think I also disagree. I think there's plenty of room for suspense and there's so much great stuff out there. I think um, you do want to keep people guessing and maybe, you know, maybe they'll know the broad strokes. Like, again, to go back to Star Wars, you got Luke on the Death Star Trench run. I think the general idea is, you know, he's going to succeed and you know, it'll probably involve the force, right? You don't know. And maybe you would even guess that Han Solo is going to be there because he's been built up through the movie. Like you should broad strokes know know what's going to happen, but it should still be surprising and exciting, right? Like the day will be saved. It's just how will it be saved? You know? Okay. So actually to give a game parallel as a game designer, when you design a game, you're kind of designing tools for people to tell stories with, right? And one of the things you want in a good in a good book is you don't want to know exactly what's going to happen because if there's not a little bit of surprise and twist, then you lose your interest, right? You want a little bit of of suspense in there so that you you keep reading, you keep playing to find out what's going to happen next. On the other hand, there are certain types of outcomes that would be dissatisfying for you as a reader. And there are there are authors who who actively mess with your expectations. Um, so as a game designer, let me give examples. There are games where a bad role can mean your character just dies and their story is over. Um, and that is supposed to be part of what makes the game exciting. What I find in in play is that most people <laughs> most people are not really that excited to have that happen and will do a lot of things to prevent that from happening and mess with the rules because it violates their expectation as both storytellers and also sort of readers, consumers of the story. So that's why in stories RPG, hearts can be lost, but if you get down to zero hearts, you're out and you get to decide what that means in the story. No one's going to die or be removed from the story unless that's an expectation that you think would be narratively fulfilling as a player. And you're like, you know what? This is where my my character's last stand is. And I think this would be a great way to tell the story. So yeah, I, I think they're, I'm a fan of suspense and I think I, I disagree with this, but I understand the, you know, the take that you had on it. So we have what? We have two more, number six and number seven. Yes. Number six be a sadist, which is uh, enjoy being mean. So no matter how sweet and innocent your leading characters are, make awful things happen to them in order that the reader can see what they're made of. Um, I I mean, you got to agree with this, right? Maybe not awful things, but you do, you do have to make bad things happen to your main character for it to be a good story. I think, right. A story where everybody's happy all the time isn't, isn't so good. Yeah, and I, you know, I prefer the word drama. I love the word drama. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's good when people fail, right? And it's good when difficult things happen because it ups the drama, it ups the suspense, it, it gets you you hooked. You know, the stories about easy, simple things. I mean, I, my thing is, it doesn't have to be conflict. Drama can come in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different ways to explore. Um, you know, things that are difficult. And I find emotional difficulty is much more interesting than physical difficulty. And physical difficulty tends to just represent, in the best stories, struggles that characters are having internally. Because that's what we're really interested in, right? It's who characters are and 
who they're becoming. Um, because that's what we're all engaged in every day as human beings. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. You know, you gotta you gotta get some drama in your characters' lives and some drama in your story. I think drama is a good word. All right. So now last on our personal reading, because we already did eight, is number seven, which is probably my favorite, which is right to please just one person. If you kind of open a window and try to please the whole world, your story will get pneumonia, you know, too much exposure. And I think that's just a great point, right? I think if you're a new writer and you can think of just a one-person audience, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's a parent or sibling or whatever. I think I think personally the best audience to pick is someone who enjoys the kind of genre you're trying to write, whatever that might be. You know, So if you're writing fantasy, find somebody who likes fantasy and try to write something that they will like. Yeah, so... I think this is also, again, one of those things that um, people often don't, when they start writing, consider. Um, if you try to write, you, if you ask someone who's a new writer, oftentimes you'll say, who who are you writing this for? And they'll say, well, everybody. And uh, I, I often describe this, and I usually don't like any kind of weaponry uh, analogies, but this one's pretty accurate. If you uh, If you try to hit a target by just sort of shooting wildly all over the place, you won't. You have to aim, right? And if you want to you want your story to land, you really have to aim for a particular person. Um and it should be somebody you're comfortable writing for, speaking with, somebody you're excited to write for or speak with. And that will help you figure out how to frame your story, how to how to write your story, how to speak to that audience and create a narrator voice that is compelling, that's genuine. That, that feels natural to you, and it'll make your story easy to read and fun for people who are in that category. You can't please everybody, so write to please at least one person that you know, and you'll find yourself ending up writing a story that's that's great for a lot more people than you would have imagined. Yeah, I sort of like your, um, your marksman targeting example, because I've heard among my friends who are marksmen that um, there's a saying, and I think it might come from the movie The Patriot. But it's sort of been around forever, which is aim small, miss small is sort of their um, their go to. And it makes sense to me. Right. So the old example is like somebody's, you know, they have their first little BB gun or pellet gun and they're trying to shoot cans off a ledge. Right. And the trick is you don't aim at the can because then if you miss, you know, you miss the whole thing. If you're aiming at the can, what you really want to aim for is you know, where the T crosses in the brand name, right? If you're aiming at a Coke can, you want to aim for inside the O in Coke, right? You aim for the smallest possible thing. And then if you miss, you're missing by a little bit, you're still hitting the target, right? So aim small, miss small is sort of the same idea as that. You just want to, you want to really narrow down what you're going for. And then if you miss, you're still going to hit in the same general area that you want. I think aim small, miss small makes sense to me at an intuitive level. Like I said, not a fan of weapon analogies, but this one works. Some of these things I don't think of as weapon analogies, even though they are, but it's it's a tool, right? It's, it's These are hunters, you know what I mean? It's people trying to- Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is from way back, people trying to feed their families, you know what I mean? Aim small, miss small, because if you hit, you get to eat, and if you miss, you don't. You know, it's an old kind of worksman saying, you know? Yeah, well, and as a as a writer, if you're really focused on- really pleasing one person and really writing a story that's just right for them, chances are you're going to be compelling enough when you write because you you know who you're talking to. You're going to write those sentences that are going to apply to a much larger audience of people who are similar to that one person who you chose. 
But if you write, try to write for a category, categories are difficult to understand. This is sort of like uh, in a story itself, you know, it's much easier to write a single character than it is to write an entire culture. If you want to explain a culture in your world, do it through a single character because that character becomes a window to that larger culture. Same way with writing for an audience, write for a single person and you'll end up writing for a larger group of people who like the same stuff. All right. Well, those are uh, Vonnegut's eight rules for writing. I think we uh, skipped around a little bit, but you get the gist. (laughs) Again, he's got some great stuff. You know, he skews a little older, but I would definitely, for a similar vibe, I would check out that Terry Pratchett series, the uh, Tiffany Tiffany Aching. Aching. Yep. The Tiffany Aching. I think those are Discworld books, right? Yep. Uh, Well, the Tiffany Aching ones are set in Discworld. Yeah. But they're about a a young witch who is, uh, who deals with a lot of what it means to be a young witch. And she's great. Yeah, and um, Pratchett is a great, funny writer, great examples of character and voice and world building. Definitely a lot to learn from that guy. So I think that'll be, those will be the two recommendations for this week. We're going to start recommending books to you. I think the Tiffany Aching series and The Rifle by Gary Paulson. Tiffany Aching is by Terry Pratchett and The Rifle by Gary Paulson are two great, very different books. Again, Tiffany Aching is very character and narrator heavy. Really funny. Everything Pratchett does is really funny. He's great. And then The Rifle is Gary Paulson. It's more survival. It's character oriented. But again, the book is an interesting kind of study because it just follows the life of a rifle. And the rifle is the main characters and it shows it's a war story. It's a collector story. It's a builder story. Just shows how a rifle can be a tool and pass through all these different hands. And it's just an interesting story that, you know, follows an object instead of a character or a event. And we'll have, uh, we have links to both of those books in the description. So next week, we're going to be back with a little mini arc. It'll be a kind of a one-shot stories RPG game episode set. And uh, we're not sure exactly what yet, but it'll be a fun little world. And then after that, we will be going back and finishing out the uh, Max Goodname Star Sworn arc, the first arc of Star Sworn, where we're going to deal with the sort of the Radiant and the other Escape Star Sworn. And then after that, well, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, so much more to dive into. As always, y'all can find us at patreon.com backslash stories RPG. And uh, you can also go ahead and look us up storiesrpg.com and feel free to leave us comments on, on some of the worlds you'd like to hear us explore. We may be talking a little bit more about some of the worlds we'd like to play in coming up. Much love and have fun out there writing your stories and playing your games. Take care. Have fun. Goodbye. Bye.